Toby Abberton emerges like a shark onto the sand at Maroubra Beach. Tattooed from shoulder to shoulder, his body bears letters like teeth. My brother's keeper. Abberton's tattoo is suggestive of the Bible's place in 21st century Australia. It floats in fragments across the surface of popular consciousness. There are traces almost everywhere, even in the hyper-masculine subcultures of a suburban beach. At the same time, its religious elements have sunk into the deep. Its older meanings are readily subverted and reshaped. But even in a truncated form, adrift from theology and even faith, the Bible can still mark out identities and provide people with a creed. Those are the opening lines of an award-winning book by academic and broadcaster Meredith Lake. She's our guest today. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, it's great to have you with us this week on Signs of the Times Radio and with me today on the phone from the ABC in the middle of Sydney is Meredith Lake. She's working there as a, a radio journalist for the ABC. Uh, her, soul, her, her show Soul Search uh, has just started playing uh, this year. She's also the author of, of a book that uh, won Sparklist's 2018 Australian Christian Book of the Year, The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. Thanks so much for joining us, Meredith. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's look, it's great, great that you could you could help us out by being here. So, I mean, the Bible in Australia, it's a um, not the sort of topic that would you know come to the top of most people's heads, you know, sort of out, out of the blue. <laughs> so, what? Yeah. What, what sort of caused you to to decide to explore this particular topic? Well, it's funny you say that it's not the first thing that comes to people's minds because I'd actually been researching the history of Christianity in Australia for at least 10 years okay. before this project came about. <laughs> yep. I mean, really, though, when you think about it, people of all kinds of views have had something to say about uh, the Bible. Like we think about our own circles of friends. A lot of people have an opinion <laughs> one way or the other. Oh, yeah. And that, that story, actually, of what have Australians thought about the Bible from the time that it was introduced here by British colonists in the late mm. 18th century, once that question had occurred to me, I quickly realised how fascinating it was because, of course, you get the convicts who aren't famous for their piety, <laughs> yeah. um, but many of them turning up with tattoos that had biblical inspirations with crucifixes or scenes from the Garden of Eden or some of them even with actual Bible verses inked onto their bodies right, right through kind of novelists, politicians, of course, preachers and Indigenous evangelists, all kinds of people have had something to say about the Bible and grappled with it in deep and devotional as well as creative and political ways. And so once I kind of started looking, oh, how have Australians responded to this text? How have they interpreted it? What do they think it is? What authority it might have, its meaning? I realised, oh, actually, there's a big story here and I was hooked. Wow, okay. So that's fascinating because it sort of seems like the people's attitudes to the Bible, the way they've used the Bible through Australian history is in some ways a sort of microcosm of the power struggles of the different social groups um, in Australia through history. It's sort of looking through Australian history through that particular lens, which is, I guess, so revealing in a lot of ways. 
I think it does almost add up to, it's not a completely alternative history of Australia, but almost, because as you say, that there's, it's been the focus of struggle. And that's been true right from the outset of the Bible's career here. You had the convicts, as I mentioned, but also the chaplain, the governor, the officers of the first fleet, the men, men of the enlightenment, many of them. Like right from the beginning of the Bible's presence here, people have had a different take on whether it's God's, you know, authoritative word for all humanity or whether it's a cultural artifact or whether it's a text that, that can be used to subvert the powers that be. And then, of course, Indigenous Australians had a whole range of responses to encountering the Bible wrapped up with kind of imperial ventures. And right through, there's been this really dynamic argument about it. And I think that's right. It has shaped, that argument has shaped all kinds of social institutions that mm. we still live with. And one example I found absolutely fascinating was the question of, you know, how do we deal with inequality, the gap between rich and poor? Yeah. You know, for some Bible readers, the answer was, oh, well, we need to found charities that distribute, you know, food and clothing and provide shelter for people. Another generation of Christians reading the Bible might say, well, actually, we need to provide mechanisms for poor people to save. And so we'll start a, a savings bank, which they did. It became Westpac. Right. Uh, another group might say, well, we need mutual societies so that people can pull their money and then redraw on that pool for a rainy day. And they founded mutual societies or providential societies, including what is now AMP, mm -hmm. the Australian Organisation Financial Provider, with that verse from Galatians in mind, you know, bear ye one another's burdens. And then a generation later, again, a different kind of Christian reads the Bible and says, oh, you know, what we need is actually not charity, but wage justice. Mm. And someone like William Guthrie Spence founds trades unions in order to agitate for better working conditions so that people are paid properly for the labour they do contribute to society. And so it's not like the Bible, people read it and it gives you one answer to mm. the question of poverty, but all these, this range of answers that the institutions we still live with from banks to financial providers to trades unions they're all shaped by different kinds of readings of the bible in light of this question of poverty and so that that's kind of an, an example of how i think the discussion of the bible has contributed to the shape of the australia we still live in now wow no that's that's in incredible so what are the most, uh, perhaps some of the most unexpected examples of, you know, where the influence of the Bible popped up in your research? Oh, there are many, many. <laughs> and yeah. that's actually what I loved about thinking about not the history of Christianity so much or the history of churches, but the history of the Bible and what people have thought about it means you hear the story of the devout, of the believer, the church attender, but you also have to hear the voice of the skeptic, of the doubter, the person who's had a much more conflicted relationship mm. with the Bible. Mm. But I mean, for me, as I'm descended from the colonizers, my family way back, well, not way back, but a few generations back came from England. As someone descended from the colonizers whose family uh, came originally from England to Australia, living in land that, of course, is Indigenous land, was given by God to Aboriginal people, that question of what has the Bible meant in that kind of clash of cultures across those cultural boundaries, that was a theme that I, mm. I found really important, really challenging to think about as a white Australian, and which I think I learnt most, that was one of the areas where I learnt most researching this book, right from the 1830s where Indigenous Tasmanians some of whom had converted to Christianity, started a newspaper down on Flinders Island that included kind of homilies or sermons produced by some of the uh, Indigenous teenagers, calling people to repent and be saved, but also expressing an anxiety about whether Aboriginal people will 
be there on the last day, given so many dying of disease and of in response to violence and dispossession, right in the 1830s, right through Indigenous activists like William Barrick and Simon Wonga and William Cooper, who founded what's now NADOC Week, right through to Father Dave Passy from the Torres Strait, who was one of the plaintiffs in the Marbo case, the case that famously overturned that idea that this was a land belonging to no one mm. and affirmed that no, no, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders have continuing and very long-standing connections to country. And the way people all through that story appealed to the Bible to articulate their own faith, but also to paint a picture of a more just society when white and black would truly relate as Christian brothers and sisters mm, without mm. racism, without the kind of structural injustice that we still live with. So yeah. that that was a theme that I, I really paid a lot of attention to just as part of my own reflection as a Christian and as an Australian. Yeah. No, but yeah. And I guess then you've got, um, you know, William Cooper, who uh, who started, uh, well, I mean, he called it Aboriginals, uh, Aborigines Sunday, which we now call NADOC Week. I mean, that yeah. that was something that obviously came from a very Christian place, from a, a very church uh, sort of background. And I guess a lot of these things, I mean, you know, who would have thought the AMP or Westpac or or NADOC or, you know, would would actually have a sort of a biblical Christian background or, or, the, or those roots? It, it sort of seems that, I guess, a lot of us in Australia today, and in other Western countries too, have sort of lost sight of those roots? I mean, is that a good thing, a bad thing, a pity, or is it just the way it is? Well, I think that that's a tricky one because I think sometimes Christians in Australia now can often feel a bit anxious about the current state of our culture, our politics. Hmm. But one thing I learned writing this book, as I might have mentioned, the Bible has been contested here from the outset. The yeah. Bible's been very influential, but not because everybody's agreed on what it means, on, on how to interpret it or what it might look like in personal life. No, 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 it's always been contested. There's always been a big argument. So in a sense, I don't think there's kind of a straightforward Christian past or a straightforward Christian background mm, mm. that to, to move on from, if you like. In fact, one thing I learned was that the convicts, when they first arrived in Sydney very early on, didn't have to go to church. That took a few years for that to come in. Yeah. And while it was voluntary, about one quarter of convicts actually went along because they chose to, mm. which is about twice as high a proportion as now. I think it's something like eight or 10% of Australians can be found in church on any one weekend. And so to think of the convicts as kind of twice as likely to go to church <laughs> as Australians are today, I think there is there has been a change, obviously. And I think religious literacy, particularly biblical literacy, yeah. is lower now than any time that it's been since the convicts. Even the convicts knew it better, I suspect, than many ordinary Australians today. So there has been a shift, but not because there was a Christian nation then and we and, and it's not anymore. Mm. I think for me, the story is more about change and transformation. Where is the Bible being discussed in our culture? Mm. And it used to be a lot of that in the churches and in the mainstream press. That's no longer the case so much just because churches don't have the same uptake in the wider society that they once did. Mm. But at the same time, religious schools make up a huge proportion of the independent school sector, and that's grown enormously over the last couple of years. So I think schools, private schools have become a site for religious engagement. I think we've got a number of great novelists or songwriters who are in conversation with the Bible, maybe not mm -hmm. as straightforwardly Christian people, but someone like Nick Cave, the goth rocker, or yeah. uh, Gurumul, the Yolngu singer. Or, yeah, well, he, he uh, released the gospel album, didn't he? Oh, that's right. It's a yeah. wonderful, it's a mm. wonderful uh, album uh, drawing on his um, background 
in a community that had a Methodist mission on Elko Island. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the paintings, there's the Australian Jesus character of the Mambo artist Reg Mombasa. Yeah. Or the, the writings of Helen Garner, one of our favourite, favourite writers mm. as a country. So, there's, it's still there. It's still being thought about. And, of course, in our political life, it still gets cited one way or another. So, it's. I think it's changing mm. rather than kind of going from a high level down to a low level. I think the the narrative's actually a bit more complicated, a bit more interesting than yeah. that might might suggest. It's it's interesting you mentioned in our political life. Um, I think it was John Howard who released a memoir. Was it Lazarus Rising? That was that. Yes. His? And <laughs> and you hear a, a lot of, I guess, expressions in politics and in in public discourse. Uh, you know, such as you know, fight the good fight, or just in everyday people's everyday yeah. speech. You know, yeah, the go, writings on the wall, the writings on or, the know, wall, something like that. Go the extra mile. <laughs> yep, um, an eye for an eye, <laughs> an eye for an eye, and all these expressions, of course, are originally biblical. I guess reflecting in particular the influence of the you know the sixteen eleven King's ja- King James uh, version. Yes. I mean, yeah. do, you, do you find that interesting? People use these expressions all the time with, with no idea really where they come from? Yeah, I, I do think there's that kind of the way the Bible floats in fragments in our in our public conversation. I mean, and a great example of that I came across, and this actually opens the book, the surfer gang or the surfer tribe based at Maroubra Beach, the Bra Boys, yeah. kind of infamous group, their slogan or their tribal creed, if you like, is my brother's keeper, which, mm. of course, comes from the biblical story in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain, having murdered his brother Abel, says to God, am I my brother's keeper to try and kind of wash his hands of any responsibility? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the bra boys have turned the whole meaning upside down and tattooed that across their chests, you know, mm. shoulder to shoulder, my brother's keeper, to say, no, I am my brother's keeper. Yeah, this they've, is the they've tribe answered that the I question, choose. yeah. Yeah, it's a statement of solidarity. It's a completely different meaning to what it is uh, in the original narrative. Mm. But it's an example of how the Bible's meaning gets taken up in different ways by different readers. And the question for me as a historian is, well, which? how have Australians done that and to what ends? What difference has that made? And I think one thing I learned through the Bible, the churches think of it as their book, of course, being communities of people who in one way or another accept the Bible as an authoritative word of God. Yeah. They might mean that take understand that in different ways, but that's something that's quite distinctive to the churches. But there are plenty of other people who might not see the Bible in those terms, who nevertheless have a view on it, who've spent time reading it, or have some kind of connection to it. Uh, so it's it's not the sole property of the churches. And sometimes in our political life now, it might be someone who doesn't have personal faith who actually sees perhaps something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount or even just something as simple as love your neighbour as yourself might have an insight into what that looks like yeah. now that Christians might not see straight away. So I think I think it's interesting. It can be cited by secular people in religious ways and then sometimes religious people talk about it in ways that actually don't reflect a faith. So I yeah. think it's, it's a curious position at the moment. I'm not sure how it's all going to turn out. It's, it is complex, isn't it? Yeah. It, mm. It's interesting. They say, you know, polite dinner conversation um, should avoid sex, politics and religion. I mean, I see people talking about, you know, all sorts of issues and oversharing all the time, really. But <laughs> <laughs> but but when it does come to religion or the Bible or, I mean, if, if you're having a friendly conversation with your friends at uni or whatever and you suddenly drop the name Jesus in a serious way, not, not in, as an exclamation of surprise or shock, the room goes very quiet. It's it still seems Australians in particular are quite shy about discussing religion or actually, you know, getting serious about discussing spirituality. Is, is, 
or is that just me? I think shy is a really interesting word that you use there. I think there's a, there can be a reticence, uh, like a hesitation to verbalise hmm. some of this. It, I mean, and these are difficult things to talk about. I mean, if you're a believing person, sometimes they're so deep and so precious. And a word like God, you know, is so, well, what does that even mean to people? Can yeah. you communicate very well using a word like that these days? I mean, these aren't easy things to talk about. And I think... Australians probably have, as a culture, been a bit shy or a bit reticent on these topics. Mm. But that doesn't mean they haven't been important to people. And we shouldn't mistake shyness for hostility necessarily. I mean, yeah. there are hostile, there are people out there who are hostile to that. And that's, of course, they're entitled to be. And I think our civic conversation needs to make as much space for, you know, whatever people's faith is, I think we need to be robust and brave with our pluralism. Mm. I don't think we should mistake shyness or reticence necessarily for, yes, for hostility or for apathy even. Mm. I mean, one of the great stories I read about doing this book was about R.M. Williams, who, you know, the famous founder yeah. of the boot-making company, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, out, the, the, the Bush outfitter. You know, he was uh, raised by a Catholic mother and an atheist father. He left home when he was about 16 or 17 and she put a Bible in his pack. He could barely read but she thought he should take one and he went off to work in the bush as a, as a young guy and eventually kind of got his Bible out and started to try and teach himself to read by using it as the text oh, and yeah. underlining bits, trying to piece it all together. And that's kind of how he taught himself to read. He worked for a while with a camelier out in the outback who was actually kind of a bush missionary who R.M. Williams could not stand. Like they would go beyond the point of no return to try and find in the hope that there would be water you know, and this guy, Bill, would be praying and praying and R.M. Williams be up to his eyeballs in frustration, but at the same time really what, realising what a compelling thing that kind of faith was. And then later in his life, R.M. Williams, he never kind of converted in a straightforward way. But once his business took off and he became really rich, kind of realising, what do I do with my wealth? How do I live? Am I a son of Mary or a son of Martha? What should it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? He wrote this memoir in the 80s that's really grappling with the question of how do you live and what did Jesus have to say about that and how do I process the Gospels as someone with a life story like mine? And there's, there's no resolution. It's fascinating. There's no ultimate kind of conclusion that he reaches. Mm. But, but the words of the Gospels, yeah, yeah. yeah, that he learnt to read from all those years ago, stayed with him his whole life and and Jesus was kind of strangely comforting and certainly a compelling figure to someone like him. Mm. So it's like, and he was, you know, he can't imagine he talked about it a lot during his life. <laughs> but it, that's an example of kind of how you might be shy or reticent or a bit not have your mind made up about Jesus. But nevertheless, a lot of your deepest thought or your questions about how to live might still, that still might be a conversation with the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Wow. Hey, you, you mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, various groups have, you know, tried to inter interpret or reinterpret the Bible, you know, according to their own agenda. You know, they, there are different readings of, of the Bible. And I mm. mean, of course, in, I guess, you know, literary criticism today, in, in looking at history even, I guess this is a, a very dominant I idea these days that, you know, history is written according to the victors. And then we have, you know, feminist histories and black histories and, and so on and, and so forth, you know. 
when it comes to the Bible, do you, is it possible to, to get past all, all that interpretation and to actually understand what it might have said to its first, its first readers, its first listeners, and to, uh, I guess, try to preserve that original intent? Or are we just, is it just impossible for us to take off all these cultural lenses that, that we read the Bible through? Well, that's a huge question, and it's, it's partly a question of theology, isn't it? Does oh, the Bible right. speak? Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a theological question. Well, it's it's <laughs> it's a philosophical question about objective yeah. truth versus subjective truth. It's oh, look, it's you're right. It's it's huge. I, I just wondered where where you were on on that continuum. Um, you know, b- between yeah, is is it all subjective and just according to interpretation, or is there actually something that is core there? I mean, the words don't change; the, the words are, are black and white. Although yeah. they do, don't they? Like that was the like because the Bible tr- is translated. I mean, we have the Bible in its original manuscript text, but we also many of us read it in English, yes. and even the King James translation is different to the one that we might have on the Bible app on our smartphone now. So I well, think, that's right. Yeah. I think each each translation on, is, is an interpretation, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah sorry, and go, and go even on. writing, I mean, we've got four Gospels rather than one, even in the canonical Bible. And so that, that idea that there's multiple perspectives, even on the life of Jesus, is embedded in what became the canonical New Testament. Sure. And so I, I think in a way it's a huge question and a really urgent question, but not one we need to try and ever put aside. I think it's something for us to keep, to remain mindful of so that we can be a bit self-aware about, well, what am I bringing to this text? Where's my culture at? And so um, to do that really high level interpreting and sifting, I think that's actually a reason why it's good to have a robust level of biblical literacy in the society at large. Like how do we know if somebody's quoting it against the grain of the text or against the grain of traditional church church teaching or against with a hermeneutic that we might want to critique mm. if we don't if we are not familiar with with the texts that are that are available to us and so i don't think there are easy answers to any of this and i think we do we need pastors we need bible scholars we need all we need literary theorists we can mm. there's a mm. lot to learn from listening to one another people from different denominations but also Sometimes people outside the churches have really insightful things to say. And so I guess I'd like to see an open conversation that actually engages with this stuff rather than either pretending it's irrelevant or pretending it's so simple we don't need to do this or pretending that it's somehow obvious what the Bible says and people should just agree with me because I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that actually being brave enough to listen to someone who might disagree with us or have a different scholarly toolkit to the one we have these are all reasons why it's good to keep talking about the Bible and have a familiarity with the text that enables us to do that well. Because I think you're right, there is, they can be weaponized. We see that all the time now. And, and in order to kind of resist, or not resist necessarily, but to be, to be smart and wise about that, we yeah. need to retain a familiarity with the text. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's really interesting you say that. And, and I can hear your, your call for biblical literacy and, and as you say, a, a critical reading of, of the Bible and of other people's re- reading of the Bible. Uh, are you, what, what do you think then of, of the idea that has been put forward, usually by more conservative groups, of actually having 
biblical literacy sort of embedded in the curriculum of, um, you know, primary school, secondary school, even tertiary study, so that, you know, when we do hear these expressions in public, we, we understand what they mean, or when we can actually look at some of the roots of, of our culture and actually recognize the Judeo-Christian, you know, ethic that is actually, you know, embedded, you know, quite deep down to the point where we, we don't necessarily recognize it. Well, I think the question of, well, then how then do you foster biblical literacy? I mean, I actually think we need a much more rigorous religious literacy across the board. Mm. Christianity is not the only relevant <laughs> tradition oh, in society now. Yeah, yeah. Although it does, because of the, the history of the last 200 years, we are living with the consequences of the kind of conversations about the Bible that I mentioned earlier. There mm. is a kind of thinking historically about how did we get here involves, I think, a degree of understanding what people have thought about the Bible. But I think a broad a broad range religious literacy would be really good for us mm. instead of kind of siphoning religion off outside public conversation to kind of go, no, no, let's actually dive in deeper and listen more widely and more deeply to all kinds of people. Yeah. Whether schools are the way to, to do that, we ask a lot of our schools <laughs> already and a lot of our teachers who already do such wonderful hard work. Yeah. How, how do you do that? The question of how do we foster biblical literacy, but also a wide-ranging wide religious literacy, I think you know, a working knowledge of many of the key faiths that are represented in the Australian community and around the world is, is really useful. Yeah. Religion's not going away. The, the world is a very religious place, even if it doesn't feel like Australia is. Yeah. That global citizenship can benefit from religious literacy and Christianity is still, you know, it's still the world's largest religion. It's something that's really useful, I think, for that kind of global citizenship. But whether schools and the school curriculum is the place to kind of try and implement that, uh, that's a big question. We ask a lot of our schools. We ask them to, you know, to, to do so much already and we ask a lot that's of our true. teachers who work so hard. I, but I think that's a question. How, do, how would biblical, what would it look like for biblical literacy and for religious literacy more generally mm. to be given serious attention? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of possibilities, I suppose, and I don't, I don't envy the people who have to kind of make the hard decisions. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely fair, fair enough. So amongst your, your history colleagues and you know, those who, who have looked uh, at the book in, in your discipline of Australian history and, and history more broadly, and, and I guess you know, people who are into literature, people who are into the Bible, that sort of thing, what, what sort of response have you gotten from, from your book, The Bible in Australia? Well, you know, I, I've been really encouraged at that other people have shared my curiosity about this topic. I mean, I think we live, don't we, at a time where the, the two kind of extremes of the, the public conversation are in our faces all the time. There's the people who are absolutely adamantly opposed to any kind of religious conversation. Yeah. And then at the other end, people who have a very particular idea of what that religious conversation must and should be all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you kind of go, well, what about... What about in between that? Are there many people left in the middle who are just kind of a bit curious who might think, I'm not a person of faith myself, but I think there's something to talk about here. I kind of wrote the book in hope that that kind of spectrum of people still existed, that they were still mm. out there and as curious as I was. And, and about, are they? Yes, I think they are. I mean, I mean, the first print run sold out. It got reviewed you know, uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Fairfax Press. Well, the Australian Book Review made it there you know, feature review of the month when it came out. The ABC had me on all over the place to talk about it, lots of different podcasts. And it was like, oh my goodness, 
I found this fascinating and all these other people do too. And it actually made me kind of hopeful that the kind of there's a lot more diversity, a lot more curiosity than, than we might normally think from the, the people with megaphones at each end of the, the political spectrum. And I, I guess I'm hopeful that by telling a story about Australia, we can kind of wise up a bit. We don't need to just borrow the American narrative or the UK narrative as if it's straightforwardly ours, but to kind of go, no, there's a, there's a story here as well that relates to this place, to, to these peoples. And maybe it's worth inclining our ear towards that and maybe there's something creative or surprising that might come out of it. I hope mm-hmm. so. Uh, you just used another biblical expression, incline your ear. That's uh... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, I grew up uh, with the Bible, uh, I guess, and it's, it's, it's soaked into me. <laughs> it happens <laughs> all go. the time. It happens all the time. Yeah. Well, hey, well, thank you so much, uh, Meredith Lake. I really appreciate the, the time you've given us. We do have a, a great uh, review of your book uh, by Daniel Reno in the March edition of the Science Signs of the Times magazine. We'll certainly encourage our readers to check that out, uh, whether it's in the magazine or, or online. But yeah, your book is obviously in, in all good bookstores, as they say, and, and, and online as well. It's called The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. Thank you so much, Meredith Lake, for your time today. Thank you very much, Kent. A pleasure to speak with you. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.